When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Welcome to Sleepover Cinema, where we analyze the films that created the collective unconscious of those who have listened to the song Don't Call Me Angel more times than they'd like to admit. Definitely me. I'm Hannah Leach. (laughs) And I'm Audrey Leach. We are the sister filmmaking duo, also known as Two Pink Pictures, and we have not stopped thinking about these movies since we first saw them. We're going to explore the good, the bad, and the nonsensical of the movies that first inspired our love for film in an attempt to answer the question, are these movies actually good? And at the end of the day, do we really care if they are? Today, we are talking about 2000's Charlie's Angels. Meet the most elite crime-fighting force ever assembled. They've got techniques you never dreamed of. You know, I signed that release waiver, so you can just feel free to stick things in my slot. Good morning, angels. Good morning, Charlie. Meet Roger Corwin. He's planning to steal a new software that can trace a voice. Today, we have a very, 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 very special guest who has been invoked on the podcast (laughs) probably many times. But since he doesn't really listen, he wouldn't really know... But it's Hunter Livingston, my roommate and my BFF. Hello, everybody. It is great to be here. (laughs) Do you want to explain yourself? Audrey and I both went to NYU um, in Tisch, the film and TV program. We met in the fall of 2016, and we became roommates in 2017, and we've lived together since then. Hunter, I am so happy that you're here, and I feel as though the audience would appreciate that one of the first things, if not the first thing that we ever connected over was uh, the street corn in the 90s version of Annie. The street corn. That's the that's the OG joke. That's yes. the one that will live on forever. Street yes. corn. Come here. What, what's the dog's name? Sandy. Sandy. Oh, yeah. Come here, Sandy. <laughs> In the 90s Annie that we have discussed Mm -hmm. on this podcast, there's that moment where she's, like, running out in the street and she, like, grabs this corn from, like, a barrel or something. Mm -hmm. Um, And uh, for some reason, that became a joke between the three of us in, like, 2017. There's a street corn vendor and that Sandy steals it from the street corn vendor. Yeah. yeah, and Annie's, like, using it to, like, tempt the dog to, like, come near her because the police officer is like, is that your dog? And then she's like, yeah, I have this street corn. Come here, dog. And then the dog comes. Yeah, it's a miracle. Yeah. It's miraculous street corn. I think it came up because we were talking about moving, like, living in New York for college and being like, I thought there was going to be street corn. <laughs> I feel like that was part of it probably unsure but um Hunter welcome to the pod and this hot take of the week had to have been chosen because you were going to be joining us I have to only guess um so the hot take of the week (laughs) comes from Madison McComas and she asks the age-old question Edward versus Jacob (laughs) Oh, Madison. Oh, Madison. It's Edward. There's li- there's no question. There's not a question. It's we're team Edward. We have to be. That's there's no other, there's no other answer. I totally agree. I, there was never a part of me that was team Jacob literally at all. So like there's literally no competition either. It's like we see in New Moon, like Bella is like, Jacob, you are my friend. Like there is no, it's always been Edward. Like yep. there's, I don't know, there's no competition. 
I agree. <laughs> and I feel like most of the people that were team Jacob were taking it all very literally being like, Edward's an abuser, like Edward's problematic. So we like Jacob mm. because he's like the nice alternative. Yeah. But like it's Twilight. Yeah. It was always going to be Edward. There was, it's literally, it, it could never <laughs> possibly be Jacob. <laughs> literally never. Yeah. No. I agree. We have absolutely zero Jacob sympathy, um, no, apparently. No, I have no Jacob. Also, in Eclipse, Jacob just kisses Bella without her consent. Creepy. Mm. And then Bella punches <laughs> Jacob. Scary. And then she breaks her hand. But <laughs> so Team Edward. Yeah. All right, Madison, you got your answer. A very clear answer. Okay, Hunter, before we get into everything here, I just have to ask you... Out of movies that could be considered sleepover cinema, which one do you think is your favorite? Off the top of my head, I might say High School Musical 2, Mm -hmm. only because I like that it's this weird country club, vibrant green (laughs) pool vibe. And I like it a lot more than the first High School Musical. The songs Mm -hmm. are better. The looks are better. It's just mm-hmm. the ele- elevated. Like, I tend to love the sequels more, and High School Musical 2 is it. Right on. I feel like most answer. people agree. Okay, so we're just going to dive right into the facts on 2000's Charlie's Angels. There is so many layers to this. I was not anticipating all the details, all the names, all these connections. But here we go. Okay, so Charlie's Angels was released on October 22nd, 2000, in theaters. And it had a lot to prove. This movie needed to come through economically (laughs) to show that a female-led action movie could succeed and, like, be viable. And we'll we'll get into that more later. But It was directed by this man named Mick G. (laughs) Surely that's not his actual name. I was really, Um, I was very intrigued when I saw that at the very end. I was like, what's the story here? But I knew we would be talking about it. So please, what is the story with this person? Mick G, he is a prolific director and producer. Um, His background is really in music videos. You can tell. And he just did like... Yes, you can totally tell. (laughs) He did like dozens of music videos, really big artists. Um, But he's directed Charlie's Angels 1 and 2, meaning Charlie's Angels released in 2000 and Charlie's Angels Full Throttle. And also Terminator Salvation and just like things to that effect. Very much action. And then he produced The Holiday, which (laughs) I had to put in there. Because I had no idea. Oh my god. Hunter. I loved the holiday. It was bad, but I loved it. And Emma Roberts was amazing. So that's amazing that he produced it. He produced the holiday, Tall Girl, The Duff, and I Feel Pretty. Um, so I thought it was really interesting that he has this directing path of like action stuff, but he's produced all this like Netflix kind of for the women Mm -hmm. (laughs) content. This movie was produced by, most importantly, Drew Barrymore herself. And she is the reason that this movie exists at all. Um, She had heard that there was an idea of a Charlie's Angels reboot movie in the works. And she was like, let me get on this. So... She ended up handpicking the director and kind of created the vision what? for the whole thing. Yeah. That's so weird. Um, her, she and her producing partner, Nancy Juvenin, um, of Flower Films, they really had a hand in this whole thing. Um, and then I have a little excerpt from Vanity Fair about this whole situation. Um, To make her initial case to the studio, Barrymore toiled away in a sea of VHS tapes. She pieced together a reel of about 200 clips from her personal library to show her vision for the film and convince Sony to bring her on board as a producer and star of a new kind of Charlie's Angels. All they really had at that point was a concept. So we told them what we would want to do, how we would want to cast it, how we would see the world, and handpick the director on and on and on. So she <laughs> is responsible for this. Got it. 
I wonder why she wanted this so bad. She um, was a big fan of the TV show, the 70s TV show. I see. And had a lot of nostalgia attached to it. <laughs> Got it. <laughs> there are a shit ton of producers on this movie. Mm. Um, there's eight in total, but the notable ones, I just put the women down because that's all I care about. So the first one is Nancy Ju- Juvenin, who is married to Jimmy Fallon um, mm. currently and has children with Jimmy Fallon. <laughs> <laughs> someone has to yeah. do it and I um, guess it's her someone had <laughs> someone had to do it um, but she is producing partners with Drew Barrymore and she also executive produced the 2019 Charlie's Angels mm, reboot interesting <laughs> uh huh um, Betty Thomas was a producer who again also executive produced the 2019 reboot this is a random fact, but she's a Leo who went to Ohio University. <laughs> we love to see it. That could have been me. Because it was like, me. yeah, <laughs> it was in her little bio, like her birthday and where she went to college. And I was like, oh, wow. That's cute. Okay, um, buddy. Yeah. And she also directed John Tucker Must Die. Nice. So mm-hmm. relevant. We'll get there. And then Jenno Topping. Jenno um, Topping. Also. All right. <laughs> Jenno. <laughs> Jenno Topping. Also executive produced Charlie's Angels, Full Throttle. But she has she has other things going on as well. She produced Ford v. Ferrari, Hidden Figures, Dawn of the Planet of the Apes, all three, or was it two or three? three. three yeah, all three Fear Street um, Netflix thingies, and The Heat. <laughs> and I I put that in for Hunter because he loves the heat, but there's going to be a The Heat 2. Wait, that's amazing. I didn't know there was going to be a Heat 2. Yeah. Is it like the original cast still on board or what? I I think so. Sandra Bullock and who? Uh-huh. Mm-hmm. Melissa McCarthy. Yeah, and Melissa McCarthy. So Charlie's Angels was written by, well, the original TV series was written by um, Ivan Goff and Ben Roberts, who were some kind of writing duo. I don't really know, but they wrote White Heat and the TV show Mannix back in the 60s and 70s. Damn. <laughs> um, and White Heat is from 1949, which is crazy. But the screenplay was written by Ryan Rowe, Ed Solomon, and John August. I found their credentials to be really confusing. Um, mm-hmm. Ryan Rowe has absolutely nothing else to his name that is, like, notable. So I'm so weird. sorry, Ryan Rowe. Ed Solomon wrote Men in Black, Bill and Ted's Excellent Adventure, and Now You See Me Too. And John August wrote Big Fish, Charlie and the Chocolate Factory, we're talking about the newer one. Mm-hmm. And Frankenweenie. <laughs> Log lines. Shall I read? Yes. Okay. So we have a log line and then we have a synopsis is what it looks like. So first of all, three women, detectives with a mysterious boss, retrieve stolen voice ID software using martial arts, tech skills, <laughs> and sex appeal. <laughs> Pretty good. Pretty good. Lots of weird use of commas. That was a hard sentence to read. Okay. And now here we have our little uh, summary. A trio of elite private investigators armed with the latest in high-tech tools, high-performance vehicles, martial arts techniques, and an array of disguises unleash their state-of-the-art skills on land, sea, and air to track down a kidnapped billionaire-to-be and keep his top-secret <laughs> voice identification software out of lethal hands. That was all one sentence. They're beautiful, they're brilliant, and they work for Charlie. In Charlie's Angels, a sexy, high-octane update of the 70s action comedy TV series. That, like, was hardly a synopsis. That sounded like a pitch. Like, I'm ready to, like, buy this film. I'm like, oh, my gosh, yes, I want to see it. That was crazy. (laughs) That was, like, not a synopsis. That was literally a pitch. That was the whole thing. I also really try to read these with as much like flair as I can. I would like to think that that would help. But yeah, this is a quite, quite a good summary. I have to say. Okay, Audrey, you know what time it is. All right. 
We've got two taglines for Charlie's Angels. The first one is, with these angels around, you can count on all hell breaking loose. And the second one is, action doesn't get any hotter than this. Ooh. Okay. (laughs) Sure. (laughs) Okay, Audrey, who's in this movie? Okay. Listen, I'm going to try and go fast through these, but it's a lot. So, Drew Barrymore plays Dylan, and she is most known for Never Been Kissed, Ever After, 51st Dates, and E.T., of course. Cameron Diaz plays Natalie. She is most known for Vanilla Sky, There's Something About Mary, Bad Teacher, and Shrek. (laughs) Lucy Liu plays Alex. She is most known for Kill Bill Volume 1, Chicago, Shazam, which hasn't actually come out yet, but I just added that. The, the, the new Best Shazam known. movie. Yeah. yeah. The, it, I've, because the things that she is best known for are really small roles, mm-hmm. I thought it might be fun to add in the future thing. Isn't she yes. in elementary? Yes. Yeah, she's in elementary. And she's done a ton of voice work, too. But I feel like, on the whole, she is underrated. Yeah, that's a, that is actually true. Yeah. I feel like she's not in enough stuff. People need to see her more. Yeah. And then I have a little, like, drama in the Bill Murray section here. Um, But he plays Bosley, and he is most known for Lost in Translation, Rushmore, Moonrise Kingdom, and The Life Aquatic. Very pretentious film vibes. (laughs) But allegedly, he did not get along with McGee, the director, or Lucy Liu. Um, There's some story that Mick G had told publicly that Bill Murray, like, headbutted him during an argument about a creative difference, like, during shooting. Okay. (laughs) And um, he was really mad that Mick G was, like, telling this story that he says is not true. But to me, it seems like there's probably some truth to it. I would buy it. Yeah, and allegedly um, Bill Murray told Lucy Liu that she couldn't act and she threw punches. <laughs> if there's any set that I would buy it on, it would be this one because she was already yeah. doing so much punching, you know? Yeah, like she that was just her most natural response. <laughs> to yeah. She starts fighting. <laughs> <laughs> then Sam Rockwell plays Eric Knox. He is most known for Moon and Three Billboards Outside Ebbing, Missouri. Tim Curry plays Roger Corwin, obviously most known for Rocky Horror Picture Show and Clue. Matt LeBlanc <laughs> plays Jason, who's most known for Friends. Lost in Space, and some show called Joey that I did not know about. That's the Friends spinoff that did not work out. Right. Sadly. I was about to say, I'm surprised. Neither of us have ever watched Friends, right? I mean, at this point, I have seen, I have seen a solid amount of episodes, but basically only because of Hunter. So. I see. Yeah. I feel like I've never, I've somehow never seen anything more than like a clip of Friends, but I knew that that show existed because I think it used to play maybe on Nick at Night or something. Oh, probably. Definitely yeah. Did. This is an, yeah. It's, I believe it started in 06. <clears throat> so that would make, that would kind of make sense. I, like yeah, Friends, I guess you're right. Yeah. Friends ended in 04. So it was just like the weird kind of Nick at Night spinoff that was yeah. trying to, keep Matt LeBlanc's career going. I don't know. But also Luke Wilson plays Cameron Diaz's love interest. I know him most from Legally Blonde. Let's be honest. Same. Me too. And um, also Melissa McCarthy has a cameo. Okay. So budget. We were working with a budget of $93 million for this movie. Um, So let's see how that measures up to the box office scenario. So box office opening weekend Charlie's Angels opened at number one in the box office first weekend of November in 2000 and grossed $40.1 million opening weekend. But ultimately, it grossed more than $264 million at the global box office and showed that female-led action movies were economically viable. Yeah. I think, well, it opened at number one in the box office the first weekend. So I think that number, $40.1 million, against the budget it's kind of like eh, it's like not great yeah. but the fact that it opened number one right. was what like gave it that yeah. energy yeah. 
like good energy. It's like that's that's the amount of money there was to be made. If it was number one, like you yeah. probably weren't going to outdo right. that. Yeah, exactly. Right. So reviews. <laughs> um, this was a really interesting situation to me because the critics seem to enjoy it more than audiences mm. by a decent amount. So the critic score percentage was 69% and the critic consensus is mixing tongue-in-cheek cheesecake with glossy action set pieces, Charlie's Angels is slick and reasonably fun despite its lack of originality. And as always, you know, I got to go look at my Roger Ebert review, see see what he was saying. He really was not feeling this movie at all. And here's a quote from his review. Sad, isn't it, that three such intelligent, charming, and talented actresses could be reduced to their most prominent component parts? And voluntarily, too, at the tops of their careers, they chose to make this movie. Barrymore even produced it. They volunteered for what lesser talents are reduced to doing. (laughs) That, like, makes my brain hurt because... Audrey texted me before this episode and she was like, this movie has all of the questions, all of like the feminism questions baked into it just Mm -hmm. by nature of what it is. And I feel like that review is like the perfect way. It's like if we were going to write like an argumentative essay, that would be like a perfect like opening resource to like talking about all the different perspectives. A few other critic opinions. Though undeniably flawed, the movie remains a surprisingly fun watch. Charlie's Angels is something rare, a mess of a movie that is somehow infectious and infectious not despite the mess, but because of it. And finally, I guess I'm just supposed to sit back and enjoy it, but somehow I feel exploited. (laughs) Uh, Okay. Oh my God. Okay. Now we're moving into the audience score. And as Audrey said, the audience enjoyed this movie decidedly less than the critics. So the audience gave this movie a 45%. Hunter is appalled. Um, (laughs) And I'm just going to read two of these reviews that Audrey has chosen. Was a long-anticipated piece of gem. The action-packed plot provided some interest to the viewer. The plot may be cliche, but was campy fun. Soundtrack was good, too. An entertaining film worth watching, to say the least. (laughs) All right, so we got that one. And here we got number two. This film is so goddamn (laughs) awful, I don't have the words. Charlie's Angels is so ridiculously bad that it has to be seen to be believed. How a film starring Cameron Diaz, Lucy Liu, Drew Barrymore, and Bill Murray could make you want to put a gun to your head is unimaginable, but somehow Mick G found a way. At best, there are a few laughs to be had at how pathetically bad this film is. Charlie's Angels is an exceptionally atrocious film that's all kinds of wrong in every possible way. That's too harsh, I think. (laughs) This person just doesn't like to have fun. And this was really mean, and I don't respect it. You know, it's it's a little violent. I have to agree. Yeah, but we'll get into that. We'll talk about that. We'll talk about the opinion. So gossip section, what was going on in the year 2000? We've got some little... Some little bits here. Christina Aguilera won the Best New Artist Grammy. Uh, Britney Spears' second album broke first week records. NSYNC released No Strings Attached. American Beauty won Best Picture. Brad Pitt and Jennifer Aniston got married. And Harry Potter and the Goblet of Fire was released. The book. The book. The book. I, I was like... Uh, the I, book. No, Hunter, me too. I saw that coming down the like, list, uh, and I was like, this bitch is so wrong. And then I was yeah, like, wait, we're book. talking about books. <laughs> the book, okay. guys. I'm not stupid. <laughs> so we are now entering the zone of when did we first watch this movie and what do we remember about it um, from when we first saw it. I saw this for the first time yesterday. So I don't have much to say. I have a feeling this is going to be Hunter's moment to shine. But Audrey, what do you have to say? Yeah, I mean, I I hadn't seen it either until I watched it with Hunter because of Hunter. So I think I probably would have seen it at some point regardless. But I was kind of coming at it through the view, through, his, first through his childhood view. When did we first watch it? Yes. Probably 2019 or something like that. I don't know. Not that long ago. A few, maybe like 
two years ago or something. And did you watch it for the first time because Hunter loves it? Yes, but not really. Like I just remember you talking about Full Throttle. Yeah. Like the (laughs) second one. And so it was like, I was like, I haven't seen it. Like we should watch it. And then it's like, well, we're not just going to watch Full Throttle. We should watch the first one and then the second one. Got it. So that's why. But Hunter, what's what's your backstory? I wish I could remember when I initially watched this first one. Um, I have a very specific memory of seeing Full Throttle in theaters when I was like, seven or no not seven I don't know oh yeah yeah I would have been like seven or something I saw it in theaters with my dad so I saw this film Charlie's Angels before that obviously and I think one of my one of the initial things I always think of about this movie is the opening for some reason the opening like really caught my attention because instead of like cutting away from the whatever the the company is like Columbia TriStar or something like that. Instead of like cutting away from that logo, it like zooms into the clouds and like then we're on like the airplane or whatever. That's the very first thing I always think of. I don't know why. It, it's just very memorable. But also, I feel like this film was also my introduction to Baby Got Back and um, what's the other song? Um, uh. All the Small Things. Whenever yes. I think of those two songs, I immediately think of Charlie's Angels. Like, it's forever linked to this film. And I feel yes. like this film was my introduction to those songs. And <laughs> that's kind of my initial, those are my initial things I think of when I first watch. It's just the music and that plain opening. But yeah, Full Throttle is like really where my memories come <laughs> in. Like, I saw that in theaters when I was fully seven years old with my dad. So I loved this first film enough to go see it in theaters, and I somehow got my dad to take me. <laughs> That's really funny and cute. Shout out to Peter for that one. Yeah, thank you, Peter. <laughs> Thanks, Peter. Okay, so there's a lot to talk about with this movie, so we're just going to take our little break now. We'll be back, and we'll get into it. Welcome to Novel Conversations, a podcast about the world's greatest stories. I'm your host, Frank Lavallo, and for each episode of Novel Conversations, I talk to two readers about one book, and together, we summarize the story for you. We introduce you to the characters, we tell you what happens to them, and we read from the book along the way. So if you love hearing a good story, you're in the right place. Our ninth season is coming this fall. Tune in to hear from some of the all-time great authors, Charles Dickens, Jules Verne, F. Scott Fitzgerald, and more. Subscribe to Novel Conversations wherever you listen to podcasts. back everyone about to discuss 2000s charlie's angels and i just want to ask before we get into this really to hunter (laughs) how precious is this movie to you it's really not that precious because i feel like it used to be when i was younger just because Mm -hmm. I was so into the action, so into the explosions. I was like, I want to run through alleys and get run through like muddy water. Like I want to fight and stuff. Um, So now it's really not that precious to me. I just have like fond childhood memories of like having fun watching it and being like in my imagination, like wanting to like be involved in the action. But Mm -hmm. now I'm like, I'm just kind of here for Drew Barrymore, but it's really not as precious to me as it was as a kid. Okay. I just wanted to clear that because I have a lot of questions for this movie (laughs) and I don't want to go to war with you at all. That's the last thing I want in life. I was literally, I I was literally saying that before we started recording, like, what if, what if you guys beef after this? (laughs) 
Yeah, right. This starts a war. I feel like my general opinions about this film, like, aren't that strong because I know I only liked it when I was literally, like, seven years old. Um, Yeah. So I feel like my opinions aren't that strong because I I also don't really watch it that often either. Like, I haven't seen—I think I've only—like, the times that we watched it in 2019, and that was, like, I can't even remember past that, so— why don't you start with notable? Something okay, the first thing I wrote was something about the color is very 2000. Like I don't know what it mm-hmm. is. Mm-hmm. I think it's just that it's super saturated. That's that's probably it. Yeah. Um but that really stood out to me. Um the overall just deep like Austin Powers adjacent vibes of the whole thing. It reminded me so much of Austin Powers. And it also reminded me of Josie and the Pussycats. Like it felt like they all, yeah, like they all came from kind of like the same stew of like comedy. That's like vaguely girl powery. And then Austin Powers is obviously like not that, but it looks, it all looks really similar. I kind of feel. They both start, Josie and this movie both start in planes. Yeah. Actually, I noticed that. It's very similar in style. Yes. But Josie's a lot funnier than this movie. Other notable things. I thought the Soul Train thing was weird. I was like, how did they get like access to this? Like, did they make a deal with Soul Train? Like, I, obviously there's more about the Soul Train thing that was really weird, but we'll get to that. Just, yeah. the, just the fact that it was in Soul Train at all, I thought was really strange. And then my last two things under Notable. Okay, at the end when they're sitting on the beach, did you guys notice Drew Barrymore's tattoo on her leg? No, Mm-mm, I didn't. She ha- There's like this weird tattoo on her lower right leg that looks like it's puzzle pieces coming together. And I was like, is that like an, is that Drew Barrymore's like actual tattoo or like what's the story with that? <laughs> and then my last thing is, so you know how also at the very end they're like, Drew Barrymore like gets the sense that Charlie is like standing over there. Yeah. And then she like chooses to like, basically like have faith and like not look at him. I'm like, is this like a God metaphor? Like, is that the whole point of this? Cause they're angels. Uh, (gasps) Well, I do feel that there is a connection there. Like, yeah. The way that Charlie is treated in general is kind of a God figure. Yeah. It is. Yeah. I could see that. But then it also, the ending also reminds me of when she's like talking to Knox, how she says that like she never met her dad. Um, And she has like this group of women who are her best friends now. And then she chooses not to like discover who Charlie is because she feels safe with like her group. So I feel like it's just kind of furthering that idea of like, oh, she doesn't need to know who he is because like. Yeah, she's like, got her she's girls. Good. She's good. Yeah, literally, she doesn't need daddy. She doesn't need it. <laughs> she doesn't need daddy. Wait, that's actually like a really, <laughs> it's like a much better takeaway from the movie than you know the <laughs> average viewer else. might have. Yeah, I was gonna say that. I feel like that's how I've always thought about it because they make a point like in that scene between um, Dylan. And Knox for I think I feel like he even says some line about Charlie being like her dad he or something. Yeah, like, he's like yeah. you're working for another man. Yeah, you're working for another man you've never known. Yeah, yeah, and that's whatever. why I kind of related those two scenes. Look at this analysis. We haven't even gotten into the deep part yet. Okay, I guess we just did get into the deep part. Okay, Hunter, tell us what you appreciate. Okay, the, one of the main things that I appreciate, and Hannah, I feel like this is coming back to your point about the colors. Mm-hmm. I really enjoy just like how Hollywood it feels like yeah. it just feels like such like a movie like capital M like mm-hmm. this is a Hollywood film and I love that it's like all practical explosions car crashes like very minimal CGI and green screen usage mm-hmm. going on just like such a movie and like the violence the looks the action like just everything about the style and the colors just screams Hollywood and like also, Alex and Matt LeBlanc, whatever his character's name is, I forget. They live on like <laughs> Jason. Yeah, Jason. <laughs> yeah, they live on like a Hollywood back lot. And it just feels like such a movie. Like, I feel like the director must love just Hollywood in general. Because mm-hmm. it was also, I feel like the style was 
not like really reminding me too much of like Tarantino reminiscent. Can I say I had the same thought. Yeah, you can say that. Tarantino. Um, (laughs) But it kind of is like in that like kind of hyper stylized Kill Bill, like Pulp Fiction-y kind of style with action and like women. I always think it's true. I thought the exact same thing with some of the action sequences and like Drew Barrymore is not a Tarantino woman. She could be. But I really feel like she would have been. And it's kind of weird that she wasn't. Yeah. But yeah, that's like one of my, that's like one of the things I really appreciate about it is it just feels like it's a movie and like I want to go to the premiere and like I want to go to the red carpet. Like, yeah, 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 yeah. It's so good. It's a movie. And they simply don't make them like that anymore, even if they're bad. Like, at least they were grand. Yeah. Exactly. Okay, this is also kind of taking it, I'm kind of comparing it a little bit to the 2019 version. Can I do that? Okay, so I didn't really enjoy the 2019 version that much. I haven't seen it. Don't. Yeah. I feel like you really don't need to see it. Um, (laughs) I honestly can't remember too much of it, but I remember one of my big takeaways was that I didn't like how kind of dry and boring all of the characters were. But I feel like in this version of Charlie's Angels, there was a lot of importance placed on like characterizing them outside their whole like crime fighting badass parts. Like Mm -hmm. Alex is like really smart, um, but she likes to cook a lot and she kind of fails at cooking all the time. And like Natalie loves to dance and she's like really bubbly. And then like (laughs) Dylan is like the rock and roll kind of grungy one. Um, So I really like how they characterize all of them outside of their work to Mm -hmm. Charlie. And I feel like the 2019 one, it was literally just like they're spies and they're fighting and that's it. It's kind of like the Powerpuff Girls. You know, they have their little personalities like outside, like what Hunter was Mm -hmm. just describing. But their actual storylines aside from fighting are about the men. Mm -hmm. It's all about how they're navigating these relationships. No, no, no. The the 2001. Um, How they're navigating their relationships with, um, what's his face? Uh, LeBlanc. Jason, as you said. What's his name? Jason, Matt LeBlanc. Yeah, Matt LeBlanc, (laughs) Luke Wilson, and... Eric Knox and Chad. And Sam Rockwell, basically. (laughs) Yes. And so Elizabeth Banks, the director, producer, star, writer, everything of the 2019 version, um was like she just went so far the other direction that mm. they became br- they became walls like they mm. there was just nothing to these characters at all other yeah. than we're going to focus on this mission and like fight crime or whatever and so yeah. I'm like my my like main thesis about this whole thing relates to that mm-hmm. but we won't get there yet Hannah what what are some of your good things Okay all of my good things are pretty uh specific/minimal I was like So I had very uh, little context going into this. So like every time that like a major character was revealed casting wise, I was like, what the fuck? Like I was writing down like (laughs) Bill Murray, question mark, question mark, like Tim (laughs) Curry, question mark, question mark. Literally every single person I wrote that down. Really one of the biggest things is that Lucy Liu is really hot and really good at acting. Yeah. It's like the amount of hair flips. She's like, hold on, let me go into slow-mo and let me flip my hair. So good. Yes. Or like the first scene when you see her in the trailer and she has like a leather bustier on for no reason. And she's like cooking and you're like, this is all I've ever needed. Like, this is amazing. Yeah. I was like, what the fuck? And we were laughing when we rewatched it about her line where she's like, they're in the party. And first of all, Drew looks so good in that scene with the straightened hair, hair, Mm -hmm. the straightened hair and they, they all look great. But Lucy Liu has that line where she goes, flip your goddamn hair. (laughs) Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's, that's the best line of the entire thing. That's so good. (laughs) They're like going back and forth on the phone. And then she's like, flip your goddamn hair. And then like, (laughs) Natalie turns around slow-mo and then it hits like the gong and then it does like the reverse dolly. It's so good. It's so good. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Honestly, for my good, that's kind of slash my appreciate. That's kind of all I had. So if there's anything else, and that's not even because I'm about to go in that hard. I just, uh, you know, that's just my truth. 
just always appreciating the inclusion of Tim Curry, as you said. Mm-hmm. Um, well choreographed fighting sequences um, that looked, they look not real in a good way. That's what makes yeah. them fun. Yeah, in a, in a fun way. And like, yeah. I like that. And like, that's another thing that the 2019 movie like took away. Mm-hmm. How, because how well can Charlie's Angels work? It's not to be taken seriously. No. Right. Like, it's it's simply not. So... No. That reminded me a cinematography thing. Um, but yes, like, Charlie's Angels is supposed to be, like, campy and over-the-top and, like, fun. But I feel like the 2019 Charlie's Angels, also with films now generally, I feel like the shots are, like, super tight now. And everything is so close. And everything is edited so much faster. But in this Charlie's Angels, the shots are way more wide and we can see the full landscape of the action. So it really gives them like a chance to be like on the bungees, like doing full flips that look fake, but are fun. <laughs> yeah. yeah. But yeah, like yeah. the new Charlie's Angels is just like fast cutting and like quick shots of like a, a tiny punch. And then like, that's it. <laughs> yeah. Tiny yeah. punch. Yeah. Tiny, tiny punch. punch. <laughs> <laughs> but I could like, uh, I really feel like that point can apply to so many recent films that are meant for wide audiences, Mm -hmm. including, like, musicals, as we have discussed heavily, you know, Mm -hmm. Tom Hooper and the over-realism shit. Yeah. Where, you know, it's like, we're doing Les Mis, therefore you must actually be emaciated. Like, that sort of Mm -hmm. thing. Like, movies aren't real. So why (laughs) why are we fighting to make them appear? Like, it's a feeling, you know? And then just, I guess this would be more so notable, but... Nobody does the three hair textures on one head thing anymore. I know. <laughs> I thought like, the same thing. Straight, curly, and wavy on one head. It looks good, though. Yeah, it, it does look good on her because she just pulls it off. Yeah, she definitely pulls it off. Cameron Diaz's whole character, I just don't get it. Like, <laughs> I don't get what the point of the character is. And I thought it was weird when she's dancing in her underwear in the beginning and it kind of looks like a pull-up. I'm like, why does it look like a diaper? Is that the thing? it's supposed to be. I'm pretty sure it's like like boy underwear because it's like Spider-Man is on it. And I swear to God, I had like those exact same ones when I was like seven. Yeah. Yeah, I feel like it's like, like random boy underwear. It's that has Spider-Man on it. There was something about I don't know what the choice was. Yeah, there was something about that that made me so There's uncomfortable. <laughs> there is something deeply uncomfortable about it. She's like heavily infantilized yes. and like it's like how is she she's being sexualized and infantilized at the same time mm-hmm. and they kind of make it they portray it as though like her that like she has all the power in these situations. Well, because they they pair her with someone like equally stupid. Yeah, mm-hmm. right. So it's like um, she's not going to get taken advantage of theoretically. I mean, also I know this is not meant to be interpreted literally, but it just is so yeah. weird to look at. It's like why is it like this? Yeah, yeah. Cameron Diaz in general would get characters like that. Like she was yeah. always kind of painted to be. Not Fiona, though. I was about to say, not until Fiona. But I feel like if I watched this film now without having seen it as a kid, I probably also wouldn't really care about it because it's just kind of like a throwaway, like, action film. Yeah. And, like, I don't watch action films. To, like, I don't like action films. Mm-hmm. So, like, I feel like if I saw it now, I'd just be like, all right, that was a movie. <laughs> Next. Yeah. But it's just so linked to childhood that I'm like, I have too many memories associated with it. Yeah. I mean, Audrey and I, I mean, that's the whole point of this show (laughs) is just, (laughs) is that exact thing. So like, that's why I'm not like, fuck this. Um, But I was just like, I don't, I'm missing. I've lost the plot, you know? (laughs) That's what it felt like. Yeah. I mean, I ain't following the plot. (laughs) Yeah, that's what I felt like too. When I thought, because even though I've seen this, sometimes I still kind of forget the plot because action films just sometimes move too quickly for me and mm-hmm. it's too tech heavy and like too and much it's, lingo. it's made up tech too. Yeah, so like, okay, I, I'm not following. But there were times when like suddenly I would catch up somehow and then I'd be like, okay, yeah, I'm back with it again. But yeah. the general 
plot is like super weird that it's like about this stolen technology, but then like it ends up like literally not being about that. Mm-hmm. And that just like comes in with like 30 minutes left and it's like, oh, so now it's a completely different idea that's happening. Well, but, that yeah. that's the moment where I caught up with the plot was yeah, that exactly. moment where they're all, they finally are together and they're in that like burning environment and they're right. like, wait. So, um... Well, they, yeah, they have to, like, spell it all out. Yeah, they us. have to spell it out for you so hard that, about, like, also, them wanting Bosley. Burning yeah, environment. <laughs> yeah, they're like, we're trying to, like, get into Red Star's technology so we can hack the satellite. And then they cut to the image of the satellite. And it's yeah, like, right. so we can track down Charlie, like... They really have to spell out yeah. everything that's like, happening. Thank God they did. I know, thank really. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know why the first like 25 minutes of this movie is like nothing but Asian jokes, but it is. You didn't even mention the whole LL Cool J taking off his face thing. Well, I almost did say that, but that then can I- be dismissed, I guess. But then I remembered that there's actual brown face later on and was like, never mind, I'll save that right. for that. Yeah, it, it became- Yeah, there's like a literal- It became yeah. irrelevant. I kind of almost want to like do a quick Google just about like if Lucy Liu has ever said anything about this movie- in terms of the sense of humor uh, that's in it, I kind of feel like it was really classic early 2000s comedy to do that sort of thing. Um, but I don't know for sure. I have found some interesting information here. So, oh, God. All right. So I Googled Lucy Liu racist jokes, Charlie's Angels. And from the summer of 2021, there's like three different articles or no, it's the spring of 2021. It's like three different articles that all have the same quote, basically saying, or like the same headline, where it's Lucy Liu says her role in Charlie's Angels normalized Asian identity. She wrote an op-ed for the Washington Post where she allegedly reflects, well, no, she doesn't allegedly reflect. She literally reflects on how the role moved the needle for the Asian community on screen. And this is a quote from her. Hollywood frequently imagines a more progressive world than our reality. It's one of the reasons Charlie's Angels was so important to me, Lou writes. As so, as a part of something so iconic, my character Alex Monday normalized Asian identity for a mainstream audience and made a piece of Americana a little more inclusive. Well, I get what she's saying, literally. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Especially at the time. At the time, was that moving the needle? Yes. Yeah. But yes. At, at the expense of a lot of actual minority groups. Yeah. Okay. Another, just one more quote. Historically, Hollywood's portrayal of marginalized people is almost always rooted in a complex mess of reductive stereotypes, caricatures, and misinformation, reflecting a hard truth about America and its legacy of racism. Sometimes this manifests as harmless jokes like heavily accented speech or making Asian women's genitalia a punchline. More often, they perpetuate dangerous stereotypes of Asian women as exotic beings who are either hypersexualized temptresses or submissive and lack any agency. These stereotypes have reverberated through our culture for decades, leaving harmful effects. Okay. So I actually kind of see what she's saying because it's like, there are like racist jokes made around her the entire time, but she is definitely the most interesting and dimensional character in the movie, despite all of that, at least to me. Yeah. So maybe there's like a reading of the movie where you're like, like maybe it's like a wink wink type thing, but it's not written or directed by Asian people. So it's very Yeah. <laughs> I think it's like Yeah, I was gonna say I feel like Mick G probably wouldn't be <laughs> in on that. And I no. don't know if the writers would be either. No. Um, so I don't know. Yeah, it's coincidental. <laughs> well, think. clearly that I mean, what I said was an extrapolation on it, but it seems like at least to her, she feels like it was positive representation. And honestly, that's kind of all that matters, especially as we are three white people. So that's what Miss Lou has to say. And you know what? I'm happy for her. I'm happy for her. (laughs) But we do just have to mention that Drew Barrymore actual 
I guess, brown face moment yeah. that was yeah insane. Her literal brown face moment, which that actually, <laughs> I feel like every time I've seen this film, I feel like I erase that moment from my head because every time I see it, I'm genuinely shocked every time. I'm like, oh shit, I forgot this is in it. Like <laughs> yeah. as soon as it cuts to that scene, I'm like, oh shit, no, Here it's it coming. <laughs> yeah. And like, I'm just like so involved in the action that it literally takes me out of it. And I'm like, oh, yeah. this is here. <laughs> yeah. Well, like, it's so weird because the movie goes out of its way to have like a weird set piece scene with race as a punchline for like almost every race. (laughs) There's just like a really distinct, weird early 2000s comedy Hollywood big budget thing in this movie and in Austin Powers that is just very not, it's not a thing now at all. No. No. Yeah. You would get absolutely incinerated for trying to do something like that. Yeah. Yeah. Rightfully so. To me, this this is the feminist central question to this movie is, to me, is it morally wrong to knowingly produce content for the male gaze under the premise of female empowerment? Well, that leads us back to the Roger Ebert quote also. For for Drew Barrymore to be like, I loved the original TV show. I'm a woman. I want to be a part of this. I want to have real control in the creation of this, which she did, um, which is good. I mean, look at the producers. There were a lot of women involved, white women, of course, obviously. I don't think it's wrong. I don't think it's morally wrong. No. I no. feel like... I would air on the side of it's not wrong because there is no right or wrong to it. Yeah, And it's the thing that we talk about all the time or like, I think it's maybe less of a talking point in feminism now than it was maybe like three or four years ago, Um, especially with like the way that media has kind of changed. What we have to consider with something like this is like the greater media implications. Yeah. Like to show, to show it to you know, there's always a concern about little, you know, what are the little girl, what are mm-hmm. the, what are the children going to take away from this? I don't truly feel that this movie would do real harm. No. To young girls. If anything, I think maybe just like body related yeah. things, but not necessarily like how they'll act or like change the way they act. Cause it is so campy and like Unreal. Yeah, but also kids imitate cartoons. Like. Yeah. (laughs) I personally feel like if you're going to try to pick a bone with this one, you're going to have to pick a bone with like the whole world because you can't like shield your children (laughs) from like. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, what are you going to do? And and I, I was kind of going down that path mentally when I was like and trying to answer the question for myself. And like, I think. I would prefer to watch a fun, problematic movie (laughs) than an overly sanitized, boring version of the same movie that is made only... It's basically made to try to correct the wrongs of the past. Yeah. And that is not a good enough reason to make something. Yeah. Like, I think that... There's a ton of things in the 2000 Charlie's Angels that should not be there. Yeah. But it's a product a product of its time that did have a very specific vision. Right. Yeah. So. And probably net positive for women in Hollywood overall. Pro- yeah, probably. I mean, in a way, it's sort of like a bridesmaids moment where, because like bridesmaids changed like the trajectory of what people thought was economically viable for women-led comedies. Yeah. So- Kind of a similar thing. Yeah. So, yeah, net positive. um, Lots of things that shouldn't be in there, but what are you going to do? What are you going to do? So does that mean when we answer our final question here, which is, is it good? It's tough. I feel like whatever (laughs) that last review you had read, I forget what it was, but it was basically saying like, it was like there's a lot of flaws, but it's, it's fun. Yeah. Like the flaws are undeniable, but it is it's, a f- genuinely fun time. I couldn't say it in a more concise way than that. Yeah. Yeah. Just, same. We take the good with the bad. I yeah. think that um, 
Drew Barrymore looks stunned. Everybody looks <laughs> stunning. And I can appreciate that. Yes. <laughs> does that make it good in some way? Yeah, it does. In Honestly, yeah. It does. <laughs> it does. <laughs> and just like don't take it too seriously and also don't watch the 2019 one. <laughs> yeah, like- <laughs> the actual message of this episode is don't watch the 2019 one. <laughs> there is, Hannah, there is a stock shot of like random little girls going like white water rafting <laughs> in the 2019 in, like, one and it's like these this montage of stock shots of like random girls doing doing things. stuff <laughs> like <laughs> girls doing stuff to this song saying talking about like girls all around the world and like that's is it the, is that the all opening? around the world pretty girls? No, 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 it is not that. <laughs> that would be honestly iconic if that's what it that was. That would actually be great. That actually yeah. would be better. But yeah, it was some like <laughs> generic version of that song, essentially. <laughs> that is really all I need to know. I think we've come to our little conclusion here. Um, Hunter, thank you for joining us. It's been an honor and a pleasure to have you with us. Yes, thank you for having me. I'm <laughs> glad I got to join and talk about Charlie's Angels, one of my first films I can remember from childhood. Audrey, what else do we have to say? Do you have anything to say? Follow Hunter on Instagram. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. What's your thing, Hunter Clivingston? Hunter, yeah, Hunter Clivingston. Hunter C. Livingston, because yeah. my middle name is Charles, and that starts with the C. <laughs> Hunter Clivingston, and you can see his short film. If you go on YouTube or Vimeo, just search Heatwave, Hunter Livingston. Sure, it'll come up. All our Sleepover Cinema listeners, you've heard us talk about the documentary that I made at the end of school, like senior year, about show choir. But Hunter also made a film senior year um, that is kind of currently making similar rounds to ours, uh, like in festivals and whatnot. So do you want to just briefly, briefly uh, (laughs) describe that or like where people can find it? Yes. The film is called Heat Wave. Um, It's about the relationship between a mom and her son. It's very similar. When I was pitching it, I was like, oh, it's kind of like Call Me By Your Name meets Lady Bird. That's kind of what the pitch was for Heat Wave. Um, We shot it in 2019, um, all NYU kids on set. And over 2020 and 2021, it was in festivals, online, and in person. And now it is living on YouTube and Vimeo. So everybody can go watch it. And I also have it on Letterboxd. So if you do watch it, you can log it and (laughs) review it and rate it. And I love reading the comments on there. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Also, just notably, no men on set other than Hunter. Okay, well, there were men on set, but they were production assistants. Everybody, (laughs) there were no other men except for me. Well, and Will, who played The main actor. Yeah. But but. there was literally two male PAs and then no men other than Hunter and the main guy, which was funny. Yes. Guys, we still have merch. Please. Yes, I'm wearing wearing the Sleepover Cinema t-shirt right now. TwoPinkPictures.com slash shop. If you have hot takes for us, DM us and we'll add them to the list. Um, We'll be back next week with another episode as always. Have a great day, beloved listener. (laughs) Okay, bye. 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 (laughs) Sleepover Cinema is a production of Evergreen Podcasts, produced, edited, and engineered by us, Hannah and Audrey Leach. Sleepover Cinema is mixed by Sean Rule Hoffman with theme music by Josh Perlman Hall. Executive producer of the show is Michael D'Aloya. You can find more from us at evergreenpodcast.com slash sleepover dash cinema and keep up with our latest creative projects at tupingpictures.com. We're on Instagram and Twitter at tupingpictures and would love to hear from you there. And if you love Sleepover Cinema, if it's become a staple of your weekly routine, or if it's a new show you've been listening to, please leave us a review on Apple Podcasts or share an episode with a few friends, maybe even both. We'll chat again soon. Bye. Bye. (laughs) 
Hello everyone, my name is Matt Neglia, and I am the host of the Next Best Picture podcast, part of the Film Entertainment Awards website, nextbestpicture.com. On our show, we explore all year long what is possibly going to win Best Picture at the Oscars. We do this by conducting interviews with people within the film industry, holding weekly reviews of the latest theatrical releases, and on our main show, where we dive into various different topics, answer your fan questions, and also do our best to explore Oscar history's past in hopes that it will tell us something new for this upcoming award season race. We hope that you will join us on all of the various podcasting networks. We look forward to seeing you over at nextbestpicture.com. This podcast was produced with the support of the Ohio Motion Picture Tax Credit and in partnership with the Ohio Development Services Agency.